I'm Ben Coley. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for the past two and a half years. My second overseas posting was to the Falkland Islands, but I'll be dead honest, before I went, I hardly knew anything about the military conflict that happened there 40 years ago. In this series, I want to learn even more by hearing from those who were there. The Argentinian general looked at the surrender document, asked if his officers could retain their sidearms. The general just said pen, scribbled out unconditional, wrote conditional, and the general from the Argentinian just said, I'm content, and signed. When you see those ships just burning away, that memory will never leave me, and I'm so, so pleased I came back I feel so, so sorry for those that lost their lives and for the family members because they didn't get their loved ones home. My father was flown back and he had no time to decompress. It took him a long time, but he now realises how difficult he was to live with. I can't tell you if you lost someone that it was worth doing. Only you can decide. But I ask you to go down and visit the Falkland Islands and you'll see that your husband, boyfriend, son did not die in vain. It's a living memorial to your guys. Join me on the journey from invasion to liberation. This is Falklands 82, stories from the South Atlantic. By the 14th of June 1982, the battle for the mountains had been won. Despite dozens of losses and hundreds of injuries, victory was now in sight. It was becoming clear that Argentina could not continue the fight. A ceasefire was declared. But work still needed to be done as the task force regrouped. Commander of three commando brigades, Julian Thompson. I then went round to marry up with two para and congratulate them on their highly successful battle of Wireless Ridge. And I was standing looking at what I thought was going to be my objectives for the next night. When I heard the voice of a sergeant major saying, get off the effing skyline, you effers, the effing war isn't over yet. And I realised he was shouting at me, quite rightly, because I was standing about on his skyline, thereby inviting shellfire on him. So I flung myself down, started looking through my binoculars again, and then a pair of boots came up alongside me, and it was David Chandler, the CO of Two Para, who said, I think it may be over. He had seen, and I hadn't arrived in time to see, the bulk of the Argentine army streaming back into Stanley. And so I ordered him to follow them up. Surrender was not official. Julian Thompson was in touch with Commander Land Forces and fellow Royal Marine Major General Jeremy Moore. I followed two para into Stanley. And while going in, I got a message from Jeremy Moore saying, don't go beyond the race course, which is on the outskirts. Saying, I don't want you tangling with these guys and starting the war again. While we were going forward, a helicopter flew overhead, dangling a white flag below it. And I thought, ah, that's Jeremy going forward to negotiate the surrender. So I decided I'd walk forward with a small group of guys to meet him, to tell him the whole of three commander brigades in behind you. If they start the fight again, we're all ready. So, you know, you've got them there. And so I walked forward. It's quite strange walking through the tail end of a retreating army. And they looked at me rather strangely. They didn't do anything. And I went to the, the building where the, the headquarters was, their headquarters, and a very smart Argentine officer greeted me in immaculate English. I said, is my general there? He said, no, mine is, with two officers. And I knew who they were. They were Rod Bell, the interpreter, and Mike Rose, commanding 22SS, setting up the arrangements for a surrender. 
And so I thought, I don't want to go in and destroy what I hope is the rapport being established between these guys. I turned on my heel and left. And, and then at that stage, I begged a space in a house. I gave orders there to everyone about what they were to do for the night. While Julian Thompson lay low, Nick Vaux, commander of 4-2 Commando, made his way to the capital. As he arrived at the doors of Government House, it was chaos. This mob of Argentines, they all running towards me, shouting. You know, I remember thinking, well, after everything else, and actually when they got there, they were all not greeting me, but they were saying, you know, what's happening? Will you tell us where we should surrender? And then they said, where, where, where are your troops? And I said, well, they're just down the road. And that was where the surrender was being negotiated and I went into government house because I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to do, sort of thing. And I actually walked past a room in which there were about half a dozen Argentine senior officers, all dressed in beautiful number one, you know, medals and God knows what. And they looked at me. You can imagine what I looked like after. And I moved on to the next room, and there was the surrender negotiations were going on. So I made a hasty retreat. And actually, I was very angry as well. I mean, really angry with the brigade headquarters, which had sent me to government house. Surrender didn't come until well after dark. Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Absalom witnessed the signing of the official surrender document as a young warrant officer. Being prearranged for the Argentinian general to be in the building they called the Secretariat. And broadly, the idea was to formalise that the conflict had finished, people would lay down their arms, and we could set about both sides to you know, get themselves sorted out. But as we sat there, the Argentinian general looked at the surrender document, and then he just, you know, talking very generally, asked if his officers could retain their sidearms. Looking back on it, I think that predominantly because a large number of the Argentinian forces was conscripts, I think, he thought he may have had a discipline problem. I don't know. Our general couldn't see an issue with that, and therefore he did agree that he was content that their officers could retain their sidearms. We asked him to sign the document again. He then said, well, actually, you've put down here, it's an unconditional surrender. I've just asked for a condition. You've granted it, so it's not an unconditional surrender. The general just said, pen, <laughs> scribbled out, unconditional, wrote conditional. And the general, the Argentinian general said, I'm content, and signed. The British held their positions overnight, and the next morning, on the 15th of June, the Paras and Royal Marines moved in to begin disarming the Argentines and moving them to the airport. After that, it didn't take long for the news to reach British shores. Major General Moore sent a telex message to the Commander-in-Chief fleet. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher had an announcement to make in Parliament. After successful attacks last night, General Moore decided to press forward. The Argentinians retreated. Our forces reached the outskirts of Port Stanley. Large numbers of Argentine soldiers threw down their weapons. They are reported to be flying white flags over Port Stanley. <laughs> the House will join me in expressing our deep sense of loss over those who have died and our sorrow for their families. So, 
The UK and the rest of the world were picking up on the news. But what about those at the heart of it all? The British task force. One of my radio operators turned his HF set to the World Service. And I heard on the World Service, 8,000 miles away, about the surrender happening 800 yards from where I was standing. So as they were still surrendering all around me, I was talking to my sister, saying, will you tell the family that I'm alive? I'm in Stanley, the war's over. And that was when the helicopter went overhead with the, with the white flag, which is where I got the, the photo. It came over the, the tannoy. People were going mad, screaming and shouting. And We finally had a definite statement from them. I think we got it from Mike Rose, the CEO of the SAS in the end, that, that it came back on his line. We could relax. We could cook hot food. We had accommodation to get in, which was the houses. But there was one lady in there kept insisting that we leave our weapons outside. And we said, sorry, madam, they'll stay with us. Okay. She said, no, no, you can't bring them in here. We said, look, we just battle over here in five weeks. There was one part of the task force, though, that, despite all their efforts, is often overlooked. 650 men of the 1st Battalion of the 7th Gurkha Rifles took part in the Falklands conflict. Brigadier David Morgan, 1st Battalion Gurkhas. These chaps travelled almost 15,000 miles in order to demonstrate their loyalty to the Crown, and the sad thing was that they never really got the opportunity. I was so proud of those lads who'd carried their kit. Some of them carried their body weight, mostly ammunition. A lot of men decided to take food out of their pack in order to put ammunition into it. They were bursting for a fight that never happened. So it's a mix, really, of relief that no one was killed, but this sort of nagging feeling that we could have done better had we been given the opportunity. You don't get bravery awards for frightening people away, which was effectively what we had done. If the Argentinians had put up any pressure at all, it would have been a massacre. The civilian population in Stanley would have been affected. And the one good thing is, if we can win battles by our reputation, then who wants to kill people? Despite the disappointment of the Gurkhas, Honorary Lieutenant Narian Prasad Rai remembers the feeling of elation. Oh, at the time, we were very excited. The company commander said that the message came through the wireless that the Argentinians have surrendered. The white flag is flown at Port Stanley. Upon hearing this, all the lads were shouting and jumping with joy, throwing the ammunition belt and rifles. I have taken a photograph of that moment, and the momentous photograph is still with me. I cherish it. It is a prized position for me. Everyone was excited and crying aloud that we have won. We are very saddened not to be engaged in a firefight. I do not know why this happened. Whether for good or for bad, sadly nothing happened, despite that kind of effort and the long waiting. Even though the conflict was all over, the cleanup was about to begin. Second in command of Fleet Clearance Diving Team Number One, Mick Fellows. One unit I had searching the face of all the jetties to make sure that there were no weapons there and the Argentinians hadn't booby trapped them. The second unit started searching the accommodation and particularly the houses that the Argentinians had occupied, the warehouse, etc., looking for unexploded munitions and booby traps. 
and I took the third unit to Navy Point, which was the old coaling jetty and mining shed area. And there were lots of slit trenches up there, manned by what I thought were soldiers. More than 900 people lost their lives in the 74-day conflict. That's 649 Argentinians, 255 British troops and three Falkland Islanders. The memory of those killed certainly hasn't been lost on former Royal Artillery soldier Fred Greenhow. As we know, we lost 255 people down there and three civilians. I am definitely one of the lucky ones. I mean, one of my biggest memories, and it always will be, I don't really like watching burning ships because when you see the RFA Galahad getting hit and the Tristan, which happened on the 8th of June, and seeing those ships just burning away, that memory will never leave me. And I'm so, so pleased I came back. I feel so, so sorry for those that lost their lives and for the family members because they didn't get their loved ones home. Mike Kelly of Two Para acknowledged there was still lots to do. They were very welcoming. We'd liberated them. We were, you know, very much still busy because there were, you know, sort of 8,000 prisoners. We had to control Stanley. We went into almost Northern Ireland mode with vehicle checkpoints and things like that. So there was still work to do and also a lot of taking stock, you know, of what what had gone on, really. Brian Faulkner of Three Para recalls a very special trip to Stanley Hospital. We walked up the steps of the hospital and the Argentinian guard was sat with a pistol on his lap, asleep. <laughs> so Jock Wilton and I smacked him with an SMG and said, we are here. And he went, oh. And a lady opened the doors and looked at us. She went, British. We said, yes. All the Falkland Islanders that lived in Stanley had been packed into the hospital. That's, that's what the doctors wanted to see, that they'd been treated all right. And she stood at the door and shouted, it's the British, it's the British. And we went in and they just came from everywhere inside. There was four of us, you know, five, six weeks of gunge, dirt and filth on us. They were so happy, we said, you're free now. And there's two doctors here. I said, is there anybody seriously ill or need doctor? They said, no. And uh, they were giving us tea and coffee and everything. They were just elated. And for Julian Thompson, his celebratory reward came from the enemy. We then went to the kitchen in this house where there was a peat-fired raven and they, they'd found some Argentine rations and some bottles of red Argentine wine and they said uh, they tipped all the tins of stew, Argentine stew, into a big pot which was sort of bubbling away on top of the agar and they invited us to join them. So we took our spoons out of our top left-hand pocket, we will keep your spoon, and dipped into this delicious mess that was bubbling away. We were lucky, we'd had breakfast that morning. They hadn't had to eat for about 72 hours, hot. They'd been marching and fighting ever since. So they were very hungry. So it was very kind of them to allow us to join their meal. Bob Highlands, who arrived the day after liberation with the Harrier Force, was one of those who took part in the cleanup of Port Stanley after the conflict. He says that it was in a proper mess. It was initially, yeah. Like I said, there were still smoking buildings. You could still smell cordite in the air. Lots of demolished buildings, lots of just a chimney stack had been left or something like that. Lots of vehicles that had been 
bombed or hit. Yeah, just a lot of debris everywhere, really. Weapons that had been dumped. You know, we've all seen pictures of when the Argentinian prisoners were being rounded up and they were just dumping their weapons Mm. in big piles and helmets and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So a lot of that was still there. Mm. And the bathrooms and, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if it was all deliberate because they, I mean, they had dysentery. A lot of the troops had dysentery as well, so um, that that wouldn't have helped. So, yeah, it was a pretty horrible, horrible situation, really. It took a bit of cleaning up before it was habitable, really, by us and other people. Finally, it was time for British troops to go home. The first units to return from the Falklands were two and three para, which left on MV Norland and MS Europic Ferry in June. They sailed to Ascension Island and then flew back to the UK. Among the first to leave was second in command of Fleet Clearance Diving Team Number 1, Mick Fellows. Mrs Thatcher had actually given or made the suggestion as we were first in that we'd worked non-stop and saved, in fact, five ships between the three teams that we eventually had down there. We ought to really be first home. We handed over equipment. We joined Fearless. We steamed for about two days toward Ascension Islands when a Chinook helicopter flew from Ascension Landed just two wheels only. It was too big to land completely on Fearless and loaded my team into it and took us into Ascension Island where a VC-10 was waiting to fly us home. Also in the air was Michael Clapp, commander in charge of amphibious land forces, who had a pretty unique descent into Ascension. I was invited up to the front seat to be with the pilot and he said, would I like to try and fly the aircraft for a bit, you see. So I did. I sat there and straight and level, dead easy. And then as we approached um, Ascension Island, I said, you'd better take over. Oh, no, you're doing fine. And I said, you know, okay, what do I do now? And he said, oh, you know, I said, do we go downwind? And he obviously got caught on the idea that I knew the language. 30 degree turn? Yes, yes, yes. Round we went. And we were coming down to finals. And I said, for God's sake, take... I." All the way around, I was saying, take over, please. I said, for God's sake, take over. I am not a pilot. Oh, cripes, he said. He took command and landed perfectly well. And he said, please don't tell the air marshal. <laughs> and I thought, bully for you. Well done. And I enjoyed that very much. And then we all got into some monster airplane and flew home. For Mike Kelly from Two Para, this was his very first time on a commercial plane. And the one thing he was looking forward to was the food. I flew back on a Monarch Airways flight. And I remember on the boat on the way back, there was no chips. We had rice with everything. And you don't realise how how much you like chips until there are no chips. And then when we got on the plane, uh, two things. First of all, I'd never been on holiday abroad at that point, you know, on a plane. We'd always, you know, driven with the kids. So I, I was unaware about you know, movies on aeroplanes. I fell asleep and uh, everybody was laughing. And I thought they'd all gone crazy while I'd been asleep. And I looked up and there was a film on and it was just one single screen right at the end and all these people with earphones in. And I was like, what's, what's, what's all that about? You know, because I've never, I've never seen anything like that before. Now I put my earphones in and I was like, oh, okay. And it was, um, the film was on Golden Pond, the movie Henry Fonda. And also, when they bought the meal out, we all started laughing again because it was rice. And we just had so many days just eating rice on the on the boats. I never thought I'd see the day that someone would be looking forward to plain food. Ugh. 
For some, the voyage back to the UK wasn't as pleasant. Welsh guard Neil Wilkinson had suffered severe burns on board the Sir Galahad. Got us onto the, to the ship, showing us our bunks. Well, the crew of the Heckler gave up all their accommodation and I was lucky I got the top bunk. They had a piped video system, so all the accommodation, and they were trying to do showing tearing the food and just use some shouting, get that off! You know, we really, it was a laugh. At the, we didn't think it at the time, but it was quite funny. They carried on our treatment on the ambulance ship and we sailed to Montevideo. It was a week, 10 days we were on there. Andrew Kenyon was on board HMS Arrow, a ship no longer looking her best. When we got to Ascension Island, the war's over, we're going home. The first lieutenant, known as a Jimmy, ordered the sailor branch to get out to weld the bullet holes that we got, cover the holes and paint them. So, so when we got home, it would look like we haven't been to work, we're, we're okay, we're fine, we're all pristine. And luckily, the night before we sailed into Plymouth Sound, a guy went up there and he ripped all those plasters off. So the holes were there, half a dozen bullet holes, big enough for when we got there, the, the, the skipper uh, posed for a photograph of one of the tabloids, one of the red tops, and he could stick his head through the hole, that's how big the hole is when it hits an aluminium ship with a 30 millimeter armor piece in cannon shell. And it, we were called HMS Arrow, the ship with the hole. John Reed was on board HMS Arrow and his parents were proud that they and their fellow sailors returned home. My mum, bless her, she was a bit of a lovely caring person and Hull's always had a bit of a reputation for being a, a place that sailors like to go to and I'll say no more about that. They bought little gifts, which was like a tankard uh, and a pen. And my mum stood up, bless her, clean as a whistle, and said, I know sailors like Hull, but I bet no woman is ever going to kiss as many sailors in one night as I'm going to do tonight. <laughs> and as the names were read out, they went up and got their tankard and their pen, hugged my mum, and she kissed 54 sailors that night. <laughs> a thing that she's been very proud of ever since. <laughs> Robert Dusty Miller had a very different greeting when he got back to Blighty. He'd served as a rapier battery detachment commander, providing air defence as part of 3 Commando Brigade, but had gone to great lengths to keep his deployment a secret from his loved ones. I never told my mother I was actually going there, so we sailed to Ascension Isles and we caught a flight. The voyage was about three weeks going home and we actually landed at RAF Warrington and I never expected my parents to be there. Um, somebody came on the aircraft and said, when you get off, you shake hands with the Mayor of Glanford, you do this, you, you shake hands with the Brigadier, the GOC, and then you can go and meet your families. And I'm thinking, why are the lads being put through this? You know, And I never expected to see my family because I never told them I was going. I got the Naffy manager restaurant to send letters that I'd wrote in advance. I trying to pretend that I wasn't there. But mothers aren't stupid, are they? And my mother came charging through the barriers along with a bus full of people and nobody could control that crowd. And then she gave me a hug, smacked me in the jaw and said, don't ever do that again. Well, I certainly learnt never to waffle to my mother. 
In total, more than 33,000 South Atlantic medals were awarded to the military and civilian elements of the British Task Force. The medal features the coat of arms of the Falkland Islands, which bears the words Desire the Right. In 2022, to mark the 40th anniversary of the conflict, the freedom of the Falkland Islands has been granted to all South Atlantic medal holders. Those journeys home by ship may have been long, but they had an unexpected benefit. They allowed time for the troops to unwind and decompress. It's something that Commando of 3 Commando Brigade Julian Thompson noticed at the time. We were lucky. Most of us went back by sea. For example, 3 Commando Brigade, most of us went in Canberra and other ships. A lot of us were in Canberra. And so that's a two and a half week passage. And we were able to unwind among our own kind. We did what's now called in the jargon decompression, which they now do by sending them to Cyprus, or they did from Afghanistan. But they had two days. We had two and a half weeks. And it really was very beneficial. And we didn't have any booze ration. And I said years later, one of the Sergeant Majors, did we have any disciplinary problems? He said, not one. And I would go around the ship sometimes at night, a wonderful starlit night down in the Southern Hemisphere, at two o'clock in the morning, because I couldn't sleep. And there'd be little groups of guys sitting, quietly talking, drinking their tinnies, you know, just talking among themselves, decompressing. That was great, and it really helped that, because there was PTSD, and, and there was the... But those flying home didn't have the same chance to slowly unwind from the fighting. Marine Jim Giles sailed home on the Canberra. I think they call it decompression now. Yeah, that, that was because the poor old paras got flown back. So you can just imagine what happened when they were thrown into Aldershot and there was beer and women involved and stuff like that. And, you know, probably a week prior to that, they were bayoneting people on Mount Longdon. Lieutenant Commander Malcolm Farrow was staff officer aboard HMS Hermes. His daughter Alice remembers this caused stress in the family home. It took him a long time, but he now realises how difficult he was to live with because he'd gone from six hours on, six hours off to within 36 hours, taking the dogs for a walk and doing the washing up and being under immense pressure to everything's fine. And I think anybody going through any kind of thing like that, it would find it very difficult. And he now realises quite how difficult he was. And Alice's dad wasn't the only one finding it hard to adjust to domestic life immediately after being in a war zone. The Admiral made sure that the staff got together and there were probably 20 to 30 members of the staff. So it was a sizable group of people. I know that not long after the end of the conflict, when they were all back, probably a couple of weeks, there was a barbecue. And I do remember, and again, this is in my three-year-old sort of impression of things, all of the men being on one side, because they were all men in those days, and all of the women being huddled in a group on the other side. And I think the conversation was, has he been a complete sod? Yes, he has. And everyone suddenly relaxed and then they could talk about what was going wrong at home. And I know that they were all having similar experiences of how difficult it was for the men to decompress. In the four decades since the conflict, many of those who served there have suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Among them 
was one of the most well-known veterans of the conflict, Simon Weston, who was on board RFA Sir Galahad when it was bombed in Bluff Cove. Although over 45% of his body is covered in burns and he's undergone around 90 operations, he says the suffering's more than skin deep. When you get lost in mental anguish and you don't have the armoury and the tools to be able to deal with that, you need intervention. You need somebody else to come into your world to make that difference, to make you see sense. You know, I was rolling around on the floor. Everybody saw me on TV and all they saw was this strong human being dealing with adversity. And they had no idea that three o'clock, four o'clock every morning, I was rolling around my bedroom floor on fire. My side of the bed would be drenched with sweat. And I was having the recurring nightmare of the plane and the bombs and the hooded demonic flame-eyed figure. And, uh, you know, something had to give. It was either me or the scenario. Despite being physically and mentally wounded, he counts himself as one of the lucky ones. I wouldn't want to do it again, but I lived through it and I'm here to talk about it now. I don't go there and talk about this side of it that often. I've only ever done it a few times. But, you know, look, there are a lot of people would love to have had my problems on board the ship who didn't make it home. I, I got nothing to complain about, absolutely nothing. I'm a very fortunate man. I've had a, the most incredible life. And, uh, you know, I, I got to see my children grow up. Some of my friends never did. For women widowed by the war, they were faced with living life on their own. Jay Hirons, whose husband, Lance Corporal Gary Bingley, was killed at Goose Green, faced this reality. What happened when Gary died was everybody encouraged me to get on with life. I was only 24. And the reality is you cannot get on with life until you've grieved, because the end stage of grief is acceptance. When I first moved to London in the early 90s, I became a bereavement counsellor. I am, if you like, an expert in grief, you know, and I worked in palliative care and I sat and held hands with people who were dying. No problem with helping people with their grief and no problem at all in sitting. And lots of people would find that a hard job to do, but I didn't. It was one of the most blessed jobs I've ever done in my life. But of course, while I was doing all these other things, I was burying my own grief. It's very hard when you are married to a war hero who will always be a war hero, even though you're not married anymore because it wasn't until death that you do part. And one of the most important stages of grief is anger. And there's lots of components to the grieving process. But I was pushed and pushed and pushed to move on with my life, even to the point where I actually went to see a psychiatrist because I'm very open about the fact that I have PTSD. In 1983, this psychiatrist looked at me and said, you're very young and you're very pretty and I think the best thing you can do is to get married again. That's cringeworthy these days in terms of what we understand about mental health, but it was pretty standard back then. So there was nobody encouraging me to just grieve. And so that process got stuck. It took me 35 years, well, it took me 29 years to walk back into an army camp. And then of course it hit me like a ton of bricks. When I'm looking at in Colchester, all these men, the similar age of, of, of the guys that went off to war. And what I can say hand on heart now is, we need to process stuff. And if we don't, we get stuck. Major General Rupert Jones understands that grief all too well. His father, Lieutenant Colonel H. Jones, died in the Battle of Goose Green. A car arrived and it was uh, the regimental secretary and his wife. 
or they asked where my mother was and you know they waited inside my mother got back and went in and clearly they'd come to tell her about h so i can picture them them going into the house and then my mother came outside and just called david and me over and just said i'm afraid it's been killed you, you've got all sorts of things going on. You've got the continuing media circus around this incredible feat of arms and news was slowly coming through about, you know, what Two Power had, had achieved. And then you've got your own, you know, grief. It was a tough couple of days um, and you turn on the news and there, there's your father. And of course, 40 years later, you're very used to that. But at the time, just my, just my father. What my father did by any standards was pretty extraordinary. We should just celebrate courage and leadership. And it, you know, the leadership he displayed was a, was a certain type of inspirational leadership. And I hope he'll, he'll be remembered for that. Many veterans have returned to the Falklands over the years. Former Royal Marine Gary Clements now lives there. He runs the Liberty Lodge, which is a place where former servicemen can stay when they visit. Gary says working there and sharing his experiences with other veterans has helped him in coming to terms with what happened 40 years ago. Yeah, that's worked for me. And, and you know, when veterans come back down, you can sit here and talk and you can, you've got a story to tell as well as hearing their story, if you know what I mean. So it works both ways. Yeah, it's good for, it's good for all of us. What we have to be thankful for, this place want to see every veteran that they can. It's not like going back to Iraq or Afghanistan or, you know, all the places that there's yeah. been wars since. Most people wouldn't want to go back no. to them places. But here, it works. It really, really does. Jay Hirons has also paid the Falklands a visit. From the time Gary died, I never thought I'd ever set foot on the Falkland Islands. You know, it was not even on the radar. And I think as time goes by... So many things change and suddenly it was coming up to the 35th anniversary and I started to think actually, yes, I, I, I would like to go. And then, of course, it wasn't just a case of just going to the Falkland Islands and seeing where he died or anything like that. I took the opportunity to actually walk his last footsteps. The last photos I have of Gary are on Sussex Mountain where they were dug in initially and so I, I set off at Sussex Mountain and, and tabbed across to past more or less where he died and and on into Goose Green so I finished off the footsteps he never quite managed as well raised the money for charity at the same time you know it, it worked out sort of about 20 miles across country and at the time the guys kept saying to me oh it's very unforgiving terrain and it kind of put me off a little bit sort of the idea of doing it but it was an incredible experience it turns that experience in my head from a dark frightening horrible place of war to of course what it is it's a place now that is at peace where the battle of goose green was in the dark it was at night and I walked it during the day. So it completely flipped that memory in my head. It was a very positive thing to do. Julian Thompson has also returned. When I go back to the Falkland Islands, which I do from time to time, it makes me realise it was a worthwhile thing to do. And I always remember going back years afterwards, and I remember one of the farmer's wives said, we baked cakes because we knew you'd be hungry. We knew you'd come. And the faith they had that we would, my God, when you think we nearly didn't, the faith they had that we would come 
the first time I walked into a, f- a house in um, Port San Carlos on day one after I landed it, I got a bollocking for the housewife for coming into a kitchen with boots on, with mud on them. <laughs> I thought, I'm home. <laughs> Today, more than a thousand personnel from all three of the UK's armed forces protect the Falkland Islands. The current commander of British forces South Atlantic Islands is Commodore Jonathan Lett. In 1982, he was 11 years old and living in London. 12th of October was the, the victory parade in, in the centre of London. I remember, you know, a V formation of Vulcan bombers flying over my house as they went in for this, uh, the fly past and, you know, the rumble, you know, we went out, we could hear the rumble because they were flying so loud and so low over the house. So those things really sort of stick in my mind and and absolutely influenced me to join the armed forces and end up here today. The majority of my workforce were not even born in 1982 so I've got got the challenge of bringing that to life for them. We've got of course battlefield tours and, and I say to those arriving you know it might feel like ancient history to you but it but it isn't in relative terms you know so much of what we still do today tactically is based on what we did in 1982 and, and often the lessons from the Falklands conflict so that's really important. I always reflect on the things that I've seen change the most, you know, from that first visit in 1994. I remember, you know, driving the road between Stanley and and MPC and and having minefields either side of the road in those early years. You know, we'd had to cut through the minefield in order to have that communication between the two centres of population and for just before I took over in November 2020 for the Falkland Islands to be declared minefield free. Just incredible to see those changes. There's been other changes too. The last 40 years have seen tremendous growth and prosperity on the islands. Thanks to fishing revenue and oil exploration, the Falklands are now considerably wealthier per capita than Britain. The population has doubled since 1982 to around 3,600 and according to the last census, about 60 different nationalities live in the capital Sanley. Thousands of tourists visit the Falklands every year, me being one of them, well, I still had to work, but I think you get my point by now. I hope that we never stop being grateful because we should. And that's what I say, like I talk to the kids about it and I always say, we must be grateful. That's how we have the life we have now. I mean, the education and health service, I think is probably second to none for a place this size. So much development since then. Wind turbines, roads, telephone, TV, a swimming pool, nice big school. There's been loads and loads of money spent here. The town has double, probably just about three times the size it was. The opportunities are there now that were not there before the war. So we have a great debt really to pay to those men, those who fought for us. Prosperity since the conflict has changed everything. But despite all this, the islanders still worry. To this day, the government in Argentina still claim that the Falklands and South Georgia should be theirs. Islander Elsa Heathman explains. I remember thinking to myself, well, now they've been, they have invaded, but they've been expelled. At long last, we can move on. But we're no further ahead in that respect. Those neighbours are still there like a dark cloud, harassing, putting on pressure. 
it's just never-ending. And I don't think most of the world realises that still goes on. The conflict changed the islands and its people forever. But as Patrick Watts points out, freedom is rarely free. I've heard people say that, you know, the war was, or the conflict, or whatever you like to call it, was the best thing that happened to Falklands. And I will immediately counteract that and say, how sad that, that nearly a thousand men had to die to ensure the future democracy and prosperity for the Falklands. That should have been guaranteed long before the 2nd of April 1982. Mm. But unfortunately, we didn't have a British government who considered that it was necessary and worthy. After hearing all of these fascinating stories, I have absolute respect and admiration, not just for the task force who risked their precious lives, but for the Falkland Islanders themselves. I've seen it for myself. The Islanders are proud to be British. And yes, of course, their past has been difficult, but they're only using it to fuel their prosperous future. And I'm in awe of their resilience. Something I've really learned about in this series is the true logistical nightmares that the task force faced. I know that the fighting itself would have been hard, sure, but now I know more about the training on the journey down and all the planning and preparation that went into those journeys. Perhaps that's me being naive to the true ins and outs of a conflict, but it really opened my eyes. This series has also helped me understand why British troops are in the Falklands right now, as I speak to you. The Falkland Islanders don't want to be ruled by Argentina. They want to be British. But I'll leave the final word to the Falklands veterans. So here we are at the, you know, the, the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War, which I always class as the last fair fight that the British Army had uh, with you know, soldier on soldier. Where sadly, we lost a ship and I lost 19 shipmates and other shipmates along the way. I can honestly say there's never a day goes by that I don't think about it. In the long term, I'm glad the Falklands are still British and, uh, you know, we now have a force there that can deter anything like this happening again. 40 years later, I have absolutely no animosity for the Argentinians at all. Most of the people on the island were kids. They had mums and dads too and children. Yeah. And now, now I look back, I don't only think of our losses, I think of theirs too. I'm amused in a way, or certainly delighted, that the actual exploits of Black Book One itself has been taught in the military service schools for the senior staff appointments on the administration, if you like, and the accomplishment of such a military operation. I thought it was important that people shared information and talked about it realistically. I was very aware that, you know, oh, well, my dad was in the Second World War, my grandfather was in the First World War, they didn't talk about it. Of course, they didn't bloody talk about it. Everyone was involved. They didn't need to talk about it. We're just small groups of guys that go off now and do horrific things and come back in the blink of an eye on a bloody aircraft and they are in Tesco's the next day. I think it's important that it's talked about. Now, you realise when you go there, that they are absolutely British and it was worth doing. I say to people, I can't tell you if you lost someone that it was worth doing. Only you can decide. But I ask you to go down and visit the Falkland Islands and you'll see that your husband, boyfriend, son did not die in vain. It's a living memorial to your guys. This is an original BFPS podcast produced by me, Ben Coley, with Jess Bracey, Jade Calloway, 
Ginny Carlin and Tim Humphreys, with interviews from BFBS The Forces Station and our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden and Sean Harper, and our editor is Josella Waldron. Thank you to all the veterans, family members and Falkland Islanders who have shared their stories with us. We know this podcast will have brought back some difficult memories for many. If you have been affected by anything you have heard, please find support on our website, bfbs.com slash audience support. 